0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Plucking Up podcast. I am coming to you this week transparently with a pretty heavy heart, with a pretty heavy heart and a heavy spirit as we just look about the world um, and see a lot of brokenness, a lot of evil, a lot of terror, a lot of loss of life. It feels almost even wrong to specifically name the Israeli-Palestinian conflict That is happening right now because I know in doing that, um, I'm not acknowledging the hundreds of other geopolitical situations where folks are suffering deeply. But of course, the situation right now in the Middle East and just the enormity of the terror and the loss of life and the evil that is unfolding is top of mind for me. And I'm finding myself really sad, really overwhelmed At the conflict itself, of course, and the enormity and the complexity and the longevity. I'm also finding myself then additionally very sad about the reactions that we are seeing to what is unfolding. When I open up my Instagram feed or, you know, I hop on the internet and the voices that I am hearing, it's like one thing for there to be a war and a loss of life because that is intrinsically, right? Like you, you cannot engage in that without there being some really fundamental and super dangerous dehumanizing stuff that is happening, right? When we look at the other and we're seeing language, frankly, from both sides, this language that is positing an entire people group as less than human, as less than humans that are made in the image of the divine um, and that deserve to be treated with dignity and respect regardless of our differences. And so seeing that really perpetuated in our reaction, the quickness that we have to pick sides and to participate in this dehumanization of entire people groups is really disheartening to me. And so as I thought about this platform and this, you know, kind of increasing conversation that I feel like we've been having lately about these third ways, these third ways. You know, I was in the airport yesterday on my way home from a conference and I was talking to somebody who was rightfully so feeling a lot of pressure from a business perspective of, well, we have to choose this or this. And I found in myself the first thing that I said to him is like, I don't think this or that is ever actually true. I think when we feel that sense of, well, I'm being backed into a corner and I have to choose this or this, I think those are the most important times where we can say, but maybe there's a third way. And I want to look for the third way. And I want to stay curious and open and available. And so as I was thinking about how to use this platform and how to use this time this week, honestly, like I don't have anything to offer. (laughs) You know, like I'm I'm pretty, in the grand scheme of things, uninformed. I do not feel like I have a super personal lived experience um, that in this specific conflict is like being impacted. I am not Jewish. I am also not Israeli. I am not Palestinian. I am also not Muslim. And so I find in myself that um, I'm like, what do I have to offer to this space? And I don't think that I specifically have much to offer to you, but I do think that I can use this platform as a way to elevate voices and to connect you to voices that may have more to offer than I do and that might be more valuable. And so as I was thinking about that, actually, a specific person came to mind that we have had on the show before. Her name is Noor Tagori, and she is a Muslim-American journalist, advocate an activist and we have previously had her on the show and I wanted to re-air her episode not because it specifically talks about this conflict because again this episode happened in the past but because I think that Noor shares some universal wisdom with us that I want us to be reminded of and that really comes down to asking I think the most powerful question that we as citizens that we as kind of global observers can be asking ourselves and that is what voices are missing from the stories that I am hearing and being really honest and courageous in evaluating what are the voices of authority in your life who is telling you the stories and it's specifically who are the voices of authority in your life, right? Um, as you look at how you've curated your media intake, your feed, as you think about the people in authority, whether that is a boss or a cultural leader that you look up to or a politician, whether it's your like mom or dad or grandfather, whether it is your boss, whether it is a kind of strong leader or voice in your friend group, I want you to take the time to look at all of the stories that you're hearing and then ask yourself the question of what stories am I missing? What voices am I not hearing right now? And then to courageously seek that out and seek those stories out, not with a spirit of criticism. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen in order to prove myself, but with a true spirit of curiosity and of empathy. And of recognizing that any time we engage in the dehumanization of any people group, that there is a part of us that is damaged in that. There is a part of our soul and our spirit that is that becomes damaged and wounded when we start to dehumanize another. And that we don't have to be using language. Like, I'm not talking to people right now who are, like, on Twitter calling people animals. Like, that's such an obvious um, example of language that dehumanizes but I want us to not think about other people and I want us to think about ourselves in this moment Are what are the subtle or not so subtle but really subtle my guess is most of my listeners if are doing this in subtle honestly even well intended ways what are the ways in which I am partaking in stories and in opinions that are dehuman, dehumanizing the others and um and what are my vested interests? That is a question we need to be asking ourselves, is what are my vested interests? Because until we understand how we are coming to a story with the desire for a certain outcome or for a certain set of facts, um, we're gonna have a hard time really getting closer to um, to a truth. And so today we are gonna be re-airing this episode with Noor Tagori. Um, it's important for me as a, again, non Muslim or Palestinian or non-Israeli and non-Jewish person to look and go, okay, what are the voices that I need to be listening to? And what are the stories that I need to be hearing? And Nor is a voice that I'm listening to right now. And when I say that, I don't even mean like this is gospel truth and everything that she says, because she's on this show, I'm agreeing with, but I'm going, oh, it's really important to me that the lived experience of someone like Noor is a voice that I am listening to. And so I hope that this episode, actually by not really being on the nose of talking about the conflict that is currently happening here in October of 2023 between Israel and Palestine and the terrorist group Hamas, I almost wonder if it can be more powerful or more useful to you because it's more universal in a broader context of how do we show up in the world In the midst of a really scary, complex time, how do we hang on to our humanity and how do we fight for the humanity of one another? Without further ado, my conversation with Noor Tagori. Noor, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. I'm so excited to chat. Total transparency. We're way into this episode right now. We have just (laughs) connected on so many things from entrepreneurship to journalism, to to salt flakes, our our passion for sodium. Uh, (laughs) We connected very early on. But for our audience who might not be familiar with your work, can you take us back? Tell us a little bit about your childhood, your family, where you grew up and kind of those earliest inklings of like who you are today and how you saw those come out in childhood.
1: Yeah. So first of all, thank you for having me. This is, I mean, I'm already having so much fun. So I was born in West Virginia, lived there for eight days, then moved to Alabama, Salmon, Birmingham. An
0: illustrious career in West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> eight days.
1: <laughs> eight days. My mom like moved literally while I was like, just came home from the hospital. Wow. Um, But I grew up in Southern Maryland and I... Was born to two immigrant parents. They both immigrated here from Libya, which is in North Africa. And And how old were they when they immigrated? My mom was 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old. She came here. My grandfather worked for the UN. Hmm. And my dad came here when he was 26 or 27. So literally my age, like my dad moved to America when he was my age, which is so wild to think of now. When mm-hmm. he came here for medical school. So my dad is a doctor. Okay, And so, yeah, so we lived in Southern Maryland. I have always been like a really curious child. I was actually just watching like home videos of me just a couple of days ago, actually, I was watching it. And I think I've always just been a journalist. Like that was what I did from the moment I was, like I was able to speak. I always asked questions. I was so curious like the first person to talk to me really after I was born, it was my dad. And I know this because there's a video of me sleeping and him interviewing me and saying like, what's on your heart? What do you want to tell the world? Like, I'm here to listen. Bless. And I yeah, love that. that's I know so sweet. My first interview ever, I was asleep for it, but that's OK, <laughs> you know, and um, they always like they saw that curiosity in me and they were really encouraging about it. They, like, my parents would put me in writing camps, reading camps, uh, journalism camps. Mm. They would take me to internships. They would take me to, like, meet different people. I was given the opportunity for my creativity and my curiosity to flourish. Mm. And I think that I see them do that. I'm the oldest of five kids, and I see them do that with everybody else. And it's so amazing to see, like, my youngest brother is 10, and he's been wanting to be an astronaut since he was three years old. He wants to go to Mars when he's 26 years old. Like, that's his plan. Wow. And... Ever since he was three, everything has just, they get him every NASA thing you can think of. They take him to like NASA HQ. He's gone to the Air and Space Museum a hundred million times. Like they just go all in when one of us is curious about something. And it's really amazing because I think that we all know who we want to be from when we are children and oftentimes we lose our path and we lose our way. And that doesn't mean I know I want to be this one career, but you know what your purpose is. Like, you know how you live in purpose, what gives you joy, what causes pain you, like the things that you care about. And if you're struggling with figuring that out now, you can always go back to that. Like I just recently asked my mom, like, what did I like to do for fun when I was a kid? Hmm. Like, what are the things that I did? I don't remember. I said, like, I have this, I'm doing right now the book, The Artist's Sway by Julia oh, Cameron with so a group good. of friends. Um, it's amazing. So good. And um, we do a lot of like inner child work. And I was just like, I have this like want to paint and to uh, do improv and do theater. I really want to like join my local community theater yeah. when we are able to again. And that's not because that's what I want to pursue for the rest of my life or anything, but it's just like, I love it. And I have this curiosity. I've never even done it before. But like, so when I asked my mom, it was like, yeah, those are things that you like doing when you're a kid. And I'm like, yeah, see, like we have to be able to go back to that. So I was very, very sure about that. But what I wasn't very sure about was who I was because I looked different from the kids in class. Mm. My mom wore a headscarf from when I was a few years old. So when she would come and volunteer at school, my mom's also a guidance counselor. So she worked at one of our local middle schools. So I was kind of confused about that and trying to figure it out. I now, in the work that I'm doing now, have realized like part of the animosity that I had towards my identity and my faith and my culture was because I was also victim to the misrepresentation of Muslims in American media. Mm -hmm. And so like when I saw people who look like my family get called terrorists. It wasn't because I thought like there would be a terrorist in my family. Like it wasn't something I related to at all. I was so confused by it. However, it was like all of these people who, by the way, are people I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a journalist and a reporter too, but they're saying these things about people who look like us and believe like us. So like I cultivated this layer of shame Mm. because the stories that were being told, Mm -hmm we're so shame based. Mm-hmm. I mean I I've been this is the work that I'm doing right now on a documentary but I've realized even like the way that the word terror that we use is so emotionally charged mm-hmm. and you can call anyone a terrorist. Anyone who terrorizes you as a terrorist it's a really easy way to focus on the feeling someone gave you instead of the actions that were caused mm-hmm. and taken. And it's a great way to make everybody feel a lot more alone and disconnected Mm -hmm. and afraid Mm -hmm. because we are taught to be afraid of people that we don't know. Not to say that there weren't horrific acts that were taken and things that have happened, but that wasn't only to a specific group of people. There's, I mean, most majority of the quote, and I'm not a fan of this word, but the majority of the terrorist attacks that have happened in America have happened by right-wing extremists, Mm -hmm. but they don't usually get that title. And so I'm a lot more sensitive now to when what terminology we use and what the intention behind it is. Mm, That's so good. So Now, obviously, I'm a lot more proud of who I am. But it came through like having like being forced into a position where I had to like reckon with what people thought I was and who I actually was.
0: Also specifically tough for you being that the field that you knew from so early on journalism that you wanted to be a part of was also Betraying like training me yeah when i think about like professions that visibly tons of people perpetuate these stereotypes in america but when i think about like professions that do that on a very visible level it's like mm, journalists and maybe politicians i would say are probably the two like yeah main vocational groups and so extra tough that it's like, oh, the specific thing that I see myself wanting to be and to do in the world is also one of the most visible mm-hmm. vocational people groups that seem to be perpetuating these ideas that, like, really, one, don't resonate with me, but two, are really harmful. And, yeah. like, is there a place for me there? Totally. I mean,
1: there's this, like, very common quote, especially being used now, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And that was, like, that would have been totally true if it weren't for my parents who were just like, yeah. no, you can just be the first.
0: I've heard you talk about your parents kind of a lot and they seem
1: like such parent goals. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm kind of like obsessed with them. But like, <laughs> I, I, I talk about them a lot because that's like why I am where I am, like 100%. Yeah,
0: I do love that. I think it's really empowering to think about, you know, when we think about how much representation matters mm-hmm. on a macro level, on an institution level, totally does, right? Like when we see the first, you know, female black, Indian vice president. That's so, so important. But also the power of like, if that doesn't exist, creating that on a micro level in your home, in your community, Yeah, it's not nothing that that actually can be a powerful force for a child that we don't have to wait until we see it on that like macro national stage for it to matter. Mm-hmm. There's things that we can do in our own little universes that we're creating is small as our homes, yeah, which sounds like what your parents did. That's
1: so true. I didn't, I never really thought about it that way, but I really appreciate that because when we want to create change, I think we have to start with ourselves. And we even have like a saying in Islam where, like, you start with yourself and your home and then your like neighborhood and your community, mm. and then you go outward. I don't know it verbatim, but that is the intention of it, and that is the point. And that's like what my parents instilled in us. And it was so important because what I learned is that even if you spend your entire life just working on yourself and helping the people right around you, that ripple effect is global. And that's where I go back to when I get overwhelmed with what's happening on the news and in the world. And I'm just like, I have to be able to do something about this. Nobody can do everything about everything. Yeah. And it's important for us to know that like that's not our responsibility either because when you can help directly, I mean, my mom does this. We have a foundation that alleviates homelessness in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area. We call it the DMV. And we've been doing this for 12 years. But my mom was like, I know I can't change this, this, and this and like the global affairs of the world, but I know I can help these people in my community right here at home. And that has been so inspiring to watch because the ripple effect of that is tremendous. It's like, if you're helping people get back on, on their feet, or you're helping people, giving them opportunities, or even if you're just inspiring people, like we have been able to thankfully like inspire people in different countries and in different states to do the same thing in their communities. And we've been able to like teach them like, this is what we do, this is how you can do it, so simple. And that is the ripple effect. I don't have to be the one on the ground doing it everywhere else, but there are going to be people who do it.
0: Part of our goal In this podcast is like we get to interview all of these amazing, super successful people who know who they are and know what they want to do in the world. You know, it's like, we'll do your intro and on your bio, list all the highlights, all the like really cool things that you've done in your life and all the cool things that you've achieved. But from lived experience, I know that so far, a hundred percent of really successful people that I've talked to have had a bumpy road (laughs) and that frankly, like successful people fail a lot more than non-successful people because they're just trying more stuff, right? That they're putting themselves out there. They're taking more risks and we don't really get to hear those stories as much. And I think that there's so much beauty and value, not just in the platitudes of like failure is requisite, but like, what does that actually look like? What does it feel like? What did you do? How did you move on and through that? So, I'd be interested to just kind of hear as you look back on your journey as a journalist, as an activist, as a storyteller, as a truth seeker. If there's a time that you can think of that you're like, "Mm, I didn't get it right. I did not get that one right. And walk us through that a little
1: bit. So, I'm like pretty much an open book. I tell everybody basically all of my secrets, the good, the bad, whatever it is. I also don't see failures as like failures, I think that they're typically lessons. But there was this one time that I was asked to speak in South Dakota, and it was in 2016. So it was like a very turbulent year. And I think it was right before the election. And I had been traveling and touring by myself around the country and giving these talks. And I got to South Dakota and I landed. And I remember like the entire plane, it was only white people. I didn't see a single person of color. And when we landed, I was just like, okay, (laughs) I'm a little out of place here. So when the student had picked me up to take me to the talk, I asked, why did you bring me here? Why did you book me? I usually always ask, you know, what's the intention so I can like make sure I'm aligned when I'm giving the talk. And she said, well, we've been really dealing with some white supremacy on campus recently and we thought you could help. And I got really overwhelmed and I got scared Hmm. and we got to the school. She said that there was going to be like 200 students got to the school. I was in the green room. I started calling my mom and I was like really nervous. My mom got really nervous. She was like, oh my gosh, why are you out there by yourself and doing whatever? She got very mom-like. And then the woman had come back into the green room and said, there's 600 people coming. Like we have to expand. Everybody's here. It was like a really big event. They didn't know it was going to get this big. So then I was like, okay, definitely something dangerous is going to happen. Like, I'm so nervous. I've had like close calls before at my event. So I was also like, had that trauma in mind. And that's where my brain went. And when I got on stage, I was so nervous. And I started judging everybody in the audience. It was like overwhelmingly white. People were you know, crossing their arms. I thought they were like mad at me. I was projecting this story onto them based on also misrepresentation Mm. and the story that I thought like of who these people were. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I decided to do this activity that I learned in this retreat that I did. And it's called If You Really Knew Me. And so I had people write down If You Really Knew Me statements anonymously. Mm. And I decided to read them out loud in the talk. And I started reading them out loud. And it was like, if you really knew me, you would know I collect stuffed animals. So I feel less alone. If you really knew me, you'd know that like, I don't feel like I belong. If you really knew me. And it was all of these, it was like, I would say maybe 90% of them. It was like, it was so many, there was like 600 people there. And 90% of the ones that I got a chance to read were about loneliness and mm-hmm. i realized that they were all going through the same feeling that i was going through on stage and i judged them the same way that i thought they were going to judge me and i mm-hmm. literally did the thing that i was trying to fight so this activity has become basically an activity i do at all of my talks now because i feel like if you show up to a space like this and an event like this and a talk like this you show up because you want to learn you want to gain perspective you want to like feel less alone. And I realized that when we give people that space, they can see themselves and everybody else's stories. And that's really what's important to us. So it was a pluck up on my part, on my insides. They don't really know that. Sure. But it was something that made me change how I approached those events.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so good. It's really, really good. I'm curious, like, how do you reconcile these very real lived experiences that you've had, you know, with Mm -hmm. how you've been treated, with how you've been discriminated against, with how you've, it sounds like, have been threatened with wanting to maintain a spirit of, like, openness and curiosity and generosity and kind of a willingness to see another's humanity when, at the same time, you are on, like, a biological, physiological level, fearful for your own. Yeah. Like, what does that, what does that process look like? Like, what do those boundaries look like for
1: you? Yeah. Boundaries is a key word to that because I've had to learn that more so in the last couple of years. I've been speaking since I was 17 years old. I was traveling the world wow. since then. And I'm, like I said, I'm such an open book. And I'm also an empath. So I take in everybody's energies and feelings. So people would, you know, after that event, people were coming up to me crying and hugging me and telling me like these horrific traumatizing stories. And I just spent the rest of the night crying because like that was how I could release. And there had been an event one time that I did in North Carolina. It was like 20 minutes away from Chapel Hill, which is where um, three Muslim students were killed execution style in their house. Two of them had just gotten married like the week before and they were killed for being Muslim. The talk was a couple of years later. And when I landed, I found out that my talk was um, being talked about on the local news because somebody had threatened to shoot up the event. People's parents were like not letting their kids go to my talk anymore. And the security guard asked if I wanted to wear a bulletproof vest on stage. And I was upset, but I, like, just kept going, and this was years ago, and it wasn't until, like, two weeks ago where I literally broke down about that. Like, it wow. just hit, and I had totally blocked it out. So I guess I just, like, keep going, but I know better now to, like, handle and, and, and process emotions better, but I don't let that get the best of me either because how could you, how could you after the event, like in South Dakota where hundreds of kids came up to me and and told me their secrets and told me these things, like how could I look at anybody and not see that? And even though there have been really hateful things that have been done to me, even when that happens, like I just feel bad for them. And I realized that like, one, I'm sure they have their own trauma. And two, I recognize that the misrepresentation of communities and the media have a really huge role In the way that people feel. And that isn't excusing people for not learning for themselves, but it's just like, I just kind of see it as sad. If my life is in danger, then I will like do something about it. But I've just never had animosity towards people who, even the people who have threatened me. Like, I just, I'm just like, I feel sorry for you that you have that much hate in you that you feel like you wanna do something like this because I don't feel that way at all about anybody. So, I only think about it when it comes up, but sometimes it comes up.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting because I do feel like that that one of the things that I feel like that perspective does is it leads you to also not just thinking about the individual and the person, but the system, the institution, the culture That created that person is what it sounds like I hear you saying of like hey I meet this person who has this really unfair hurtful maybe even violent view towards me and I'm thinking less about like is that person good or evil or like oh I feel bad that you were given the messages by the media by the institutions by the. I mean
1: that's just like the level of empathy that you need to have not just for them but for yourself like it's important empathy is like Gloria Steinem says empathy is the most radical emotion there is. And it's true because it takes a lot to get there. It takes a lot for me to not take it personal, but I realized that when they have that hate towards me, it's not about me. It's about them. Yeah. It literally is about them. And like I said, that doesn't excuse their behavior because if you feel to me, it's like, if you feel that much hate towards someone or towards a type of person, then it's your responsibility to do your research and not look for answers that confirm Your emotion, but instead learn from them themselves Mm -hmm. Like if you have such hate towards muslims, but you've never met a muslim then that's like on you that's your fault that you have Continue to like let that hate fester inside of you but my empathy for that person is I feel bad that you carry that with you because It's a result of things like the war on terror and and how I said that's emotionally charged And we were talking about a feeling and people don't know how to recognize their feelings Even when we talk about our feelings oftentimes we say things like I feel like you don't understand me. That's not a feeling. I feel hurt that you said this about me. I feel sad that you said this. But I feel joy that you said whatever. Those are feeling mm-hmm, words. Like mm-hmm. we learned these things in kindergarten, but we forgot. We so forgot. So anytime you say something like, I feel like, that's not a feeling.
0: Yeah, it's so, it, it, it's so true. I'm, I'm only laughing because in- therapy, my counselor literally gave me a wheel. It was like a wheel of feelings because I just I intellectualize everything. I'm like, this is what I think about this This is my opinion on this. Totally. She literally like handed me a card and was like, you're not allowed to say anything that isn't on this wheel of feelings. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, because I'm a very emotive emotional person. I feel, and to your point, I think when it comes to like verbalizing it, it's really hard to not have it go up through the channel of my brain. And let me like rationalize it first before I verbalize it. Totally.
1: I started talking about my feelings now to everyone. Like anytime anybody hurts my feelings, I will say like that hurt my feelings. I literally wrote an email a couple of days ago to a team that we were working with. Something happened, but we're not working with them anymore. And I was so surprised and I literally was like, I feel sad that this happened. I feel hurt that this happened. And I was like, wow, like you could read this and you could take it and be like, is that childish question mark? She's telling me how she feels, but like, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Like letting each other know, because I know that your intention is never to hurt me. So like, let me tell you like why, like it has been so freeing because I realized I let my emotions process Mm -hmm. all the way through. Obviously, there are really hard emotions to process and it will take time. Yeah. But sometimes I'm just like, oh, I feel this way. Okay, let me just like breathe it out.
0: I love that. When you said, like, does it feel childish? I think my answer to that is like, yes. And in a very beautiful, profound exactly. way that we should probably all try to get back yeah. to. I think one of the things and like one of our like cardinal marriage rules is like, cause my husband's the same way. We're both very like, we can intellectualize stuff. We get, We're not conflict averse, but we go to arguments so fast of like, here's why what you said doesn't make sense or it's wrong or I was right or whatever it is. You can always argue Mm -hmm. what you can't argue with. And one of our like cardinal rules in marriage is like, you can't argue with my feeling. Mm -hmm. Like if I come to you and say that really hurt. That made me feel sad. Yeah. That you made can't me feel negate that feeling. You can't say like, no, it didn't. It's like, that is a hundred percent my thing. Mm-hmm. You can accept it or not, but you cannot argue with it. And I, I think that that introduces the really important conversation around like impact and intention, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, I operate similar to you. I want to operate in the world with this assumption that people aren't out to hurt me, that their intentions weren't bad. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I don't think it's ever my place to make a judgment call on someone's intention. I can never know that. Was that out of malice? Was it out of ignorance? Was it out of a good intent? I literally can't ever know that. That is your truth for you to know. I can share with you the impact That that action born out of whatever intent had on me. And I think as a culture, we are so, and I say as a culture, and I mean, if we're going back to start with yourself, I'm like the world's most naturally defensive person, right? Where it's like, somebody says you did this and it hurt me. And my first instinct is like, let me tell you why I did it. And therefore the subtext of that is like, and why you shouldn't feel hurt by it. Because I didn't mean it because this was my intention. I do that all the time. Totally. But it's like, I'm totally bypassing that gift that you just gave me in saying like, I feel sad. Yeah. Like that made me feel sad and not pausing. And also like not respecting the courage that
1: it took for somebody to share that because it's hard to share your feelings. Totally.
0: It sounds like you're pretty far on the spectrum of like there's always room to continue to ask questions and to create space for other people's story and to find your like shared humanity. Mm -hmm. Do you personally have like lines where you're like, if you can't meet me here, then I'm like out. Are you just like, I'm up. Like, I will continue to ask questions and to lean in. Like, where is that like balance for you? I
1: mean, I so I don't want to like share my balance and then my balance be like, It's so personal. I do a lot more than I think the average person needs to do. I don't think that anybody owes anybody explanations. Because of my profession, like, I am willing to have a conversation with anybody. Yeah. Oftentimes, especially Muslim women, we're put in a position where, like, we have to, like, explain things or explain our identities and explain ourselves. And I just want to say, like, no, you don't ever owe anybody that. I guess for me, the boundary that I set is, are you listening to listen or are you listening to respond? Yeah. And if you're actually listening to listen, then I will talk to you until like, it doesn't feel right for me. It's hard to explain and answer that directly because I'm a very intuitive person. If somebody tries to engage in a conversation with me and my intuition is saying like, not, nope, nope, not good person to do this with, then I won't do it. Yeah. I'm like, I, I very much listen to that voice. But to me, like as soon as you just start talking, and I, by the way, this is new. This is like me finally setting this boundary. And this isn't just with strangers, this is with loved ones too. Mm. But if I realize that we're talking and it's you're not actually hearing me, then I'm not going to waste my time because I don't have time to waste. And also, I'm so sensitive, and my energy is like something I really want to protect. So it's just not worth it because at that time, it's not even in benefiting that person like that person is just looking for a way for themselves to be validated and something that like they're afraid to hear that they were wrong. And so to me it's like I'm good on that. But like if we want to show up vulnerably with me then I'm willing to do that because I also want to learn from you. I never think I'm 100% right about something. I always have space like I want to learn other people's perspectives because I believe that, you know, in this lifetime, in our human experience, we only get to experience this life one time. There's only so much we can do in one lifetime. But like, I love part of why I love stories because I like to collect everybody else's experiences too. So I want to learn from everyone because I won't get to experience what they've gone through, nor do I want to. I just want to hear about it because I'm already on this path for myself, but I will always meet you in that space.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I think, thank you for the very important preface of like, my experience my boundaries my rules for myself are not necessarily prescriptive for other people i yeah. think that's a really important like cuz we're all given different i think we have different capacities different skill sets different like goals different tests different tests in life and that mm-hmm. i think that we can definitely learn from one another and i love being challenged and encouraged and inspired to push myself in ways where I see people are like, oh, you're doing a really good job of that. That's really aspirational to me. Yeah. But I also have seen how that can be like weaponized against people that it's like, you know, you have this one really successful, you know, Muslim woman who like has all of this empathy and curiosity and willingness to engage Mm -hmm. and that being used against another person being like, well, why can't you be more like her? Like, why can't you be more empathetic? Yeah, of
1: course. And I think it's also it's like so important for us to realize too, like that's me as a person. Like that's me outside of like my faith identity and how I dress and every other identity. That's just me. Mm -hmm. And I say that a lot because there was this one time I was speaking at an event in Texas and it was all Muslim women. And we were talking about like, basically how to deal with when people have something to say and whatever, which is pretty like sad that we have to have so many of those conversations because we deal with it on such a regular basis. And this older woman stood up And she was so like sad and she literally was just like, I just want to be allowed to have a bad day. Hmm. I want to be allowed to go to the grocery store on a bad day and look upset and not have somebody assume that it's because I'm oppressed. And I was just like, yeah, you're right. Totally. We all deserve to be able to just have a bad day. So guess what? Like, have your bad day, because if anybody else assumes something and projects their own story onto you, and this isn't just for Muslim women, it's for anybody, that's their problem, not yours. Totally.
0: Oh, but that's so hard when you feel like this responsibility for representing a people group, that there's not a freedom to just be your individual self, you know? Yeah.
1: The only solution to that is more proper representation. It's more yeah. shows and movies and stories, yeah. and it's, more, it's just seeing more diversity in our different mediums of storytelling because then that's how we get to show each other that there are so many different ways to be different people. There's 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. That means there's 1.7 billion ways to be a Muslim. Like, and that goes for anybody. And I know this to be true because when watching my friend's show Rami, which is a show about a, like young Muslim guy in New York, New Jersey, it feels like scarily familiar. Hmm. And I, I, it was really hard for me to watch. And I just hmm. realized like, oh, I've been talking about representation all of this time. And the reason it's so hard for me to watch is because this is what being represented feels like. And I just thought to myself, I was like, there's so many shows about like young white people that aren't Muslim on television. And is this why people have so much love for those shows? Like I have love for a lot of shows that are people who don't look like me, but like the level of that love does that happen when it's like you can directly see yourself in this? Because I guess I realize I've never been able to do that. Mm. Even the shows that I enjoy so much, like they still don't relate to my experience. So and not to say that it's like word for word of that experience. I mean, the show Rami, like I haven't gone through so many of the things that he went through in that show. But like I am familiar with those storylines. Totally. I know what that is feels like yeah so it just affirmed to me like that this is the space that I need to be in because I want to make more things that allow for so many people to feel that way
0: and just like the diversity within that and Mm -hmm. the nuance where it's like as a white person I have seen white representation of literally I mean like ditzy funny loud brilliant evil (laughs) like selfish so giving like funny nerdy quirky There's been so much representation that it is. It's so much easier for me to see bits and pieces of myself in that. Whereas like it's uh, frankly, it's probably I mean, part of it's just like a numbers game, right? Where it's like, okay, if you have five, you know, black or BIPOC or. Muslim characters to choose, like the likelihood that you're going to be like, oh, I see myself in that. I see myself in that. It's like so much less.
1: Well, but it's also important to recognize that there is like misrepresentation. There's even misrepresentation in white-led stories too. I mean, look at a show like Modern Family where you have this like middle-class quotation family, but they're living in a house that's like $1.5 million (laughs) and their style and their, like everything looks amazing. And so it, it makes people feel like, well, that's not how I live. So is something off? Totally. And it makes people feel less than. Yeah. We just need more representative stories in general. Yeah. And when we people realize that representation is good for all of us, it alleviates our fears. It makes us feel less lonely. And by the way, the stories are just so much better. Yeah. They're so much better when you can feel that much closer to it. Then we all win.
0: I listened to the New York Times Daily podcast all the time and I listened to the one about France and I did have some thoughts about it and then I read your post that was like critiquing kind of the lens and the perspective that it was from. Yeah. And to me that was such a good example of like even when you're aware like you have an entirely different lens and experience in your level of awareness towards this specific lens of how is this affecting this specific community being a member of that community obviously is going to be more heightened and educated and informed than mine. And so reminding myself that also like I always have space to learn and to grow and to make sure I'm leaning in and listening and learning.
1: Totally. I think though with like something like the daily podcast and that experience, even when we're not a part of those communities, because I'm not a part of every community either, but because of the community that I am a part of and because of the misrepresentation that we have gone through, I am super aware of when voices are missing from stories. Yeah. We can all listen to that episode and be like, what voice was missing in this story? Why did it make me feel uncomfortable? There's no Muslims in this story. And, and it's you're about, talking about Islam. Yeah. You're literally talking. I think like he, the, literally the reporter said, I think Muslims feel this about this. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you think? And they just, they never mentioned any hate crimes against Muslims. They didn't mention the fact that like hijab is a choice. They didn't mention the fact that French people Mm. leave the country so that they can pursue their passions and their dreams because French women wearing hijab are not allowed to work in most places. Like, what do you mean? I feel like anybody can listen to that and be like, something is wrong. Mm -hmm. It felt like gossiping.
0: Mm, That's an interesting emotion to have like that I'm explaining on behalf of or making assumptions about without actually yeah, creating space. it's white-splaining,
1: which I guess my whole life I was used to that because that was like, I've always seen white people tell stories of Muslim people, but French Muslims are always kept out of the debate and always kept out of the conversation, like actually legally. Like if you saw my post, you saw that when I went to France, I was on a talk show and I literally couldn't share beforehand because they were like, corporate will pull the plug. We were not allowed to have Muslim women on this show. Like, but you could debate Muslim women's identities, but you can't have them on to talk about it. That doesn't make sense. That's not freedom to me. Well,
0: I think you're a really good example of not only are you bringing awareness and critiquing what is currently happening in mainstream that could be a lot better. You're also co-creating like you're going like, okay, that's not okay. Also, I'm creating art and media and stories like Mm -hmm. from this perspective. And I think in culture, there's always like there's a place for critique and there's a place for creation. And I think it's really beautiful and powerful when you're doing both. And I think that that's what you're doing is saying like, hey, not okay. Here's how we do better. Also, I'm going to do better (laughs) and like creating a new way. Yeah,
1: totally. I mean, that's at the end of the day, it's literally why I have been able to do things the way that I do every single project that I have right now. Like I I try to make sure that it's collaborative. I have like even with my podcast NOR, I literally work with people beforehand. I just before I got on this interview, did a pre-call with somebody and I asked, What does your dream interview hmm. look like? What are the stories that you want to share? What haven't you got the opportunity to talk about? Because I want to work with people to tell their stories because I think it always just does better that way. Yeah. I mean, I know this, like I'm I've never done an interview in the last 10 years like a magazine, whatever interview where I have not been misrepresented. I just did, I was just like a digital cover for GQ Middle East too. And the title of the piece was A Life Unshackled. Like it was so disheartening. Even when I think I won't be, I'm putting into this narrative and I have to like do the fact-checking and the course correcting for people. A lot of publications don't have fact-checking departments anymore, but. Okay, that statement alone is so depressing. I know. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other conversation media companies like don't really like they just that's one of the things That has gone away with budget cuts, but It's like let's learn how to be more collaborative with people's stories You can share it ahead of time so I can do that work for you But like i'm not going to tell you how to change like the way that you wrote. Yeah, like if somebody does do that Then just don't listen. Yeah, but just take the factual like yeah anyway, that's That's why I do what I do. I
0: love it. Well, I really appreciate you and your work and your voice of both critique and creation, I think is really, it's really powerful. And it's one that I've learned and benefited and been very inspired and challenged by. So
1: thank you so much. That means so
0: much to me. What a delight. Thank you so much for your time on the show. I think probably next time we talk, it'll be to uh, work through a business plan together. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, But thank you so much for your time and for being here today.
1: I appreciate you. Thank you so much.
0: Okay. Well, I feel like I just learned a lot. That was like one of those conversations where I'm like, how lucky am I that I get to do this, have these amazing conversations with smart, brave, bold wildly inspirational people because I have a lot of takeaways and I hope that you do too. But more than anything, as always, I hope that you walk away feeling encouraged and inspired and a little bit less alone as you are out there in the world, building a beautiful life of purpose and passion and impact please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at The Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can visit LizBohannon.co or follow me on Instagram at LizBohannon or my producers at SincerelyHuman or Human underscore Media on Twitter. Thanks so much, you guys. I'll catch you again in the next episode. And until then... Stay plucky.